2: From the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation. I'm Sam Willis and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. Now before we begin, let me tell you all about a new partnership that the Society for Nautical Research has formed with the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth. From now on, on production of a valid Society for Nautical Research membership card, the SNR member receives free access to all attractions at Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, including the Gosport sites, which are Explosion and the Submarine and Coastal Forces Museums, but not the Mary Rose. And there's a 10% discount at the National Museum of the Royal Navy gift shops but also an SNR member who can produce their valid membership card can be accompanied by one guest and that guest will receive free access to HMS Victory and the HMS Victory Gallery at Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. If more than one guest is present the additional guests may purchase the single attraction ticket fee with a 20% discount and may then access HMS Victory and the HMS Victory Gallery. All of this adds up to a very significant saving which makes joining the Society for Nautical Research well worth it, if only for a free trip to Portsmouth. And that's without mentioning all of the other fantastic benefits of membership which you can find outlined at snr.org.uk. Today we continue our Maritime Disasters mini-series with the SS Waratah, or The Ship That Disappeared. It's one hell of a story. What we have here is a passenger and cargo steamship built in 1908 for the Blue Anchor Line. That's a British shipping company operating between the United Kingdom, South Africa and Australia between 1870 and 1910. Now, it was on only her second voyage, this one on a leg of a journey from Durban to Cape Town in the summer of 1909, that this enormous ship of 9,339 tonnes, with the capacity to carry over 1,000 passengers, simply vanished. And perhaps more remarkably, the wreck has defied the work of numerous explorers, archaeologists, historians and adventurers who ever since have tried everything they can with the latest technology to locate the wreck. So the mystery endures. To tell me more about this remarkable story and to look at the plans of the ship and the written records of her design and construction, I travelled to London to the archives of the Lloyds Register Foundation and spoke with the archivist, Max Wilson. Please note that this interview was also filmed, so if you would like to see the documents we are referring to and to see us having this conversation in an atmospheric storeroom in a historic building in the middle of London's historic Woolwich Arsenal, then do go over to the Mariner's Mirror Pod's YouTube page to check that out. But for now, here is Max, and as ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him and poking my nose in lots of boxes containing historical material, never knowing quite what you might find.
1: Max, tell me about the Waratah. Where was she built? So the Waratah was built in Whiteinch in the city of Glasgow by the company Barclay Curl & Co Limited. She was the yard number 742 and was a fairly large mixed passenger cargo steamship uh, measuring about sort of 9,339 gross tons. Hmm. So a fairly, fairly substantial ship uh, owned, owned and operated by uh, the, Blue, the Blue Anchor Line.
2: And was the Blue Anchor Line based in Australia or was that a, a UK based They are, I believe
1: were based in the UK right. um, but obviously you know they were expanding very much into the Australian market um, yeah. by that point.
2: The mixed cargo thing's interesting. So she wasn't just a passenger ship, but was also built for for uh, t- taking cargo to and from Australia as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. So she was. Um, uh, it's you know actually the the issue of cargo became a very central a central part uh, part of this mystery really. So she was carrying wool skins, mixed some food, uh, lead concentrates as well. So quite mixed cargoes, some of yeah. which by today's standards would be considered quite hazardous to take. Yeah,
2: and primarily that was. Back from Australia to the UK, I suppose they were exporting things.
1: Yes, you know, yeah, and
2: people maybe went the other way.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say, you know, certainly going out towards Australia, it was it was definitely an emigrant ship, definitely. Okay,
2: so like mass mass movements of people rather than just sort of a few isolated wealthy people travelling to Australia.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, she had a a, a maximum capacity of about nine hundred and twenty-one. You know, so it's it you know, and, and and about sort of 930 sort of life belts uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and other equipment. So it was she was quite a large ship. The Blue Anchor Line. That's an established company, is it? They already have other ships. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So they've already got other ships. Um, again, another another key focal point within Waratah's story is her sister ship, the Geelong, as well. So you find that throughout that entire um, you know the entire inquiry and the entire story, the Geelong is something that she's constantly compared to and certainly the Blue Anchor line by the beginning of the the 20th century are, are quite a well-established uh, line they're looking to expand um, by the time is built there's already another ship that's being built to her exact specifications so right. again later on this becomes something that's that's quite central to that story yeah
2: and the yard where she was built that was an established experienced shipbuilding yard as well
1: yeah Barclay and Co Limited. Um, again very very reputable shipbuilders um, you know of, of, of real note and um, you know, yeah, very much established in that area as part of that, um, you know, prestigious Clyde-based shipbuilding.
2: So the Waratah is launched. She's launched in the
1: Clyde, and mm. then um, what happens next? So the Waratah, um, she she finally gets to London. She loads in London. Um, she's she's surveyed. Um, she's surveyed there, and she leaves London on the fifth of November, nineteen o eight.
2: So she's already done kind of sea trials, she's been oh, surveyed, yes. as you said, and that was the Lloyds Register, Register who were doing that surveying, was it?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So, so Lloyds Register by this time had already done um, all of the surveying. Um, the sea trials had taken place in the, the Firth of Clyde. Um, she had a top speed of about 15 knots uh, to the measured mile. So by the time she got to London, she was, you know, for loading, uh, before going on to her maiden voyage out to Australia, she, she was, there certainly were no issues that were identified at that time. Um, and so she left London on the fifth of November, nineteen oh eight. As part of her timeline, again, uh, you know, on the on the sixth of December, there's there's an incident where her her coal, her coal bunkers fire. Um, and there is an inability to to, uh, to put out a fire in her coal bunker for about two days. That's on a starboard lower it's bunker. It's a serious fire. Two days. Yeah, quite a serious fire. Um, you know, and this again is something that's raised later on. Um, although it's although it's briefly mentioned in Captain uh, Joshua Edward Ilbury, uh, in his logs um, back back to London, it's not something that's particularly um, you know that's particularly uh, dwelt upon, and it was it was put out very very regu- you know, qu- quickly. Um, and later on we, you know, when Waratah finally made it back to London these repairs were made and uh, you, know, it's, you know it's very unlikely that that would have occurred again which was again another theory as to her loss.
2: Okay so do um, we think that the fire was a teething issue
1: primarily? I, th- I believe so and so of course um, later on she gets back to London in March of 1909 after that there appears to be a slight discrepancy in terms of the story so the managers of Waratah are quite central to the story, um, William London Sons um, they're responsible for, um, you know, the sort of the operational service of Waratah, and they later on would tell the inquiry that uh, at this period there was no mention of Waratah's behaviour at sea uh, about her stability or anything like that, which is something that the court queries quite quite closely because for her maiden voyage and considering that there's also another ship being built to that exact specification is unusual. Later on, uh, Barclay Curl and Co Limited. Uh, really discredit William London Sons and you know, failed, cannot corroborate that account and actually bring forth a series of letters which indicate that Captain Ilbury of the Waratah is very, very concerned after that maiden voyage of the stability. Right. Um, and that uh, also um, William London Sons have written to Barclay, Curl & Co Limited to uh, discuss stowage and issues of stowage, um, quite angry uh, letters between about the fifth and the sixteenth of April. Okay. Um, so later on, uh, when they're questioned by this uh, William London Sons would say that actually it's, he actually you know described it as it, it was just a bluff over a, over a financial issue of demurrage, um, and that uh, it was to try and you know force a financial settlement from Barclays and Co Limited, but. Again, once again, when he's when he's questioned about this, uh, the financial settlement isn't something that he can recall as to whether or not was it was ever successful. Right. Okay. So it's very strange uh, what happens.
2: At least we do know that the first captain had some concerns over the the stability, um, or maybe um, finding the appropriate trim with uh, having to move the you know the, the the cargo
1: as well as the people. There's quite a lot of moving factors here, aren't there? Oh, certainly, certainly. You know, I think that. By the time we get to the Court of Inquiry, there are really two central questions to this whole story. Um, the first is as to whether or not there was something that was inherent in her design that would have caused a st- an instability at sea, uh, and the second is whether or not there was some kind of inconsistency with her stowage uh, and, the, and the lading uh, throughout that voyage that may have caused uh, or exacerbated any problems further, or well have been the very cause of those problems.
2: Yeah. You've shown me the ship plan which you've got in your archives which really shows in great detail how this ship was built.
1: Take us through that plan. Um, So the main plan um, which really formed quite a central part of of the the investigation was the profile plan itself. So with the profile plan we can see the full arrangement of all the decking, uh, we can see the arrangement of the passenger accommodation, we can see uh, winches, all of the 14 lifeboats that were on board and uh, also on top of that we can also see all these seven watertight bulkheads which again also feature quite prominently within the inquiry itself the other uh, the other the other side of this as well is we can also see the, the arrangement of coaling stations um you can also see the the arrangement of where the machinery is as well uh, that's her five sets of boilers uh, and also her quadruple expansion direct action uh, engines yeah and that's all pretty
2: advanced stuff in terms of ship design i mean this is the latest the latest thing isn't it
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, I think she's very, very well equipped. She's got a Kokodi's distilling apparatus, so she can produce about 5,500 gallons of water in 24 hours. From seawater? From seawater, Oh, wow. yeah. And um, on top of that, you know, she's got three different chronometers as well for, for the longitude. She has a Kelvin patent sounding machine as well for depth. So, again, another central part of that inquiry really centered around whether or not she could have drifted could she still be out there it was also the amount of space on board she had enough space for food for about a year so there was some understanding that perhaps she may have been cast adrift or broken down mm-hmm. um, and this is something can be seen in that in that very 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 expe- extensive equipment list that she yeah. had you know she was very well equipped
2: yeah and, and well surveyed and lloyd's rate her very highly don't they i mean she gets the, mm. the sort of the highest classing possible oh absolutely possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's built under special survey. She's surveyed all throughout that whole entire process uh, by the surveyors in the Glasgow office uh, from about sort of, November 1907 to about December 1908. So by the two surveyors, A.B. Uh, Harris and John McIlvenna, uh, who were also asked later on by the Board of Trade uh, to corroborate uh, their th- their evidence and to substantiate that everything was done according to the rules and regulations. Uh, and that the the contract was followed and that the ship was built to the plan as specified. So, yeah, yeah, it's, um, you know, she got the very highest rating and there was nothing particularly extraordinary about her design.
2: Let's move on to the final voyage when she was travelling from Australia back
1: to London. What do we know about that? So she managed to make it to Australia. Um, She docked at Adelaide. Uh, Then later on, she would dock finally on the 26th uh, of July at Durban at... leaving that same evening and was never seen again yeah simple as that just gone yeah there was with the exception of one corroborated sighting by the clan mcintyre on the 27th which was the very last verified sighting um yeah there is no there is no evidence as to what happened to her yeah what was the weather like so on the 27th when the clan mcintyre identified waratah and they exchanged signals um it was quite fair light Um, But then Clan McIntyre corroborates that uh, on the 28th, uh, there's a very, very, very heavy storm. Um, In fact, the Chief Officer and the Master on board the Clan McIntyre say it's the very worst they'd ever experienced in that area. Um, They were both very experienced sailors by that point, um, you know, had a combined sailing uh, of nearly 30 years. So, you know, very, very experienced. Um, But in that 24 hours since seeing Waratah, they were only able to make about 32 miles of progress within that weather, so they were very, you know, very heavily beaten back. Mm. So eventually, uh, with this Court of Inquiry, um, it would be established that whatever happened was likely to have happened on the 28th during this very, very heavy storm.
2: Yeah, and obviously the weather's very bad, but the communications equipment is important here, and one of Mm. the key things I've discovered
1: about this is that there was no radio. No. Um, Was that usual? Um, that was it. Was quite it was quite standard, really. Um, it was it was still you know radios um, and wireless telegraphy was wasn't something that was uh, mandated for use on board ships, and so you know as is the case with m- many of these kinds of technologies, it took a very long time for them to be adopted as an industry wide uh, mm-hmm. you know for industry wide use. So no, it was definitely not um, not unusual. So these ships are.
2: signalling to each other with lights um, instead of exchanging basic information about the name of their vessel where they're going but that's big, that, that's it, no more than that, no more info.
1: Yeah aside from just obviously swapping um, names and, and identifying each other, greeting, asking potentially where they've just come from uh, and then what weather they've had um, that really is it, it's very very basic information just to to, to verify their identity uh, so that they can be marked in each other's logbooks if something happens. Uh, and um, yeah, that's, 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 exact, that's the very last verified sighting on the 27th by uh, the Clan McIntyre. It,
2: it suggests there are other unverified sightings.
1: There were, there were. So I think it's, it's very difficult. There were three other ships, aside from Clan McIntyre, that claimed to have, um, you know, to have, to have seen Waratah. Um, they were largely dismissed. Um, there was one um, by, uh, uh, which was by telephone, actually, the uh, William London Sons, um, well, William Lund, in his hotel room, had received a phone call saying that he had verified a sighting uh, identifying himself as a man called Brendan, of the ca- captain of the Thales, right. Uh just as he was near uh, East London in South Africa. And he had said that they'd verified and swapped, swapped identities. Um, But they could never get in touch with this man again, so that was largely thrown out by the court. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another ship, um, the Guelph, um, which claimed to have seen Waratah on the same day as the Clan McIntyre, but 12 hours later, but given her identity, uh, or rather given the account that was given, uh, and where she was, and relative to the speed that Waratah was said to be going at by the Clan McIntyre, it was seen as very unlikely that she could have been in that place and time and the Guelph also wasn't able to get every single letter of her name it was only able uh, in the very high uh, in the swell to be able to make out T-A-H at the very end of that name so right, right. again that was also something that was largely thrown out uh, as, as very unlikely um, and the last which was also uh, again a very a very important theory that was used to potentially explaining her loss was um, by the Harlow um, on the 27th, again, it was. They estimate. You know, uh, it was believed by the captain um, that he could see a, a vessel about 25 miles off, of very, very heavy smoke. Um, and by about eight o'clock in the evening, he claims to have seen two very large flashes. Uh, one which went about a thousand feet into the sky. Wow and another one that was about 300 feet into the sky. So that's explosions? He, that's Yeah, although he never heard any noise. Ah. Uh, and likewise, none of the lighthouses nearby, despite only being between about one and two miles off the coast, saw anything. Yeah. Uh, this was also disputed by, um, by the chief officer uh, as well on board uh, the Harlow, who claimed that actually what they were seeing were, uh, were bushfires on the coast. Ah,
2: so facing towards the land. And,
1: yeah, and that potentially that may, it may have been a slight optical illusion um, you know, given, given, given that, that, you know, that there were bushfires on both the upper and lower parts of the coast. So it's, you know, but, but this was also, you know, this was something that was believed to potentially have, have, uh, have been caused by, again, another, another coal bunker fire that could have happened. But again, there would have been enough time for them to lower boats, to make distress signals. Um, also, it's very likely there would have been a lot of debris, which have they never found. Right. Yeah,
2: because when ships sink, things come to the surface, don't they? Whether yeah. it's bodies or whether it's, you know, uh, their cargo. So no one found anything?
1: Nothing. Nothing at all.
2: It does make you wonder what could possibly make a ship disappear that quickly, that everything inside it has actually been uh, sort of trapped inside.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's very
2: strange. It's does very, it does suggest a huge wave or something like that. So there is... An investigation. There's a serious problem, I and mean, this the entire ship has gone gone down. Someone needs to be blamed for it. Someone, well, people need to find out what's happened to all of their loved ones who've been on on this ship as well.
1: How does that whole um, kind of process and investigation unfold? So, in the immediate disappearance of Waratah, um, there are several accounts which come forward, which I've, I've just given you. But uh, you know, there's also a very extensive search period uh, as well. Um, so. All ships in that area are put on high alert um, between uh, August and September. Um, There's a very heavy Admiralty funded search as well. Um, uh, The Sabine, uh, which is a Union Castle line ship at the time, uh, funded by the owners, uh, the financiers, the underwriters, uh, travelled around 14,000 miles looking for Waratah. Um, So by the time that the inquiry was finally was finally uh you know uh, proposed really and and was and the events were set in motion Um, it took place at caxton hall in westminster um, between about december 1910 and february uh, 1911 Uh, and over that time they were discussing the design of the vessel they were discussing whether or not uh, there was any kind of inherent instability as a result of that design and construction and then also what kind of cargo she was carrying how it would be stowed um, but again, I think the real thing which really hampered them was that there was no real direct evidence um, that could really explain what had happened. It's yeah. a dangerous
2: part of the world, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you end up mm. a- adrift off the coast of South Africa, you can end up in Antarctica, you can drift around in the middle of the Southern Atlantic for some time. Um, what were the theories?
1: Well, for a little while there was a theory that she had drifted. She could be somewhere out in the South Sea. Uh, she could be out and far in the South China Seas, in you know, near close to Antarctica, uh, with all of the passengers and crew quite safe, but just adrift. Um, the search more or less put an end to that theory. Um, it was established by the court that that was a very, very unlikely theory, given that there was no uh, that so much ground had been covered. Yeah. Um So that side of things the search if anything proved that whatever had happened must have over, overtaken her and, and overcome her uh, or she must have been overcome very very quickly um, quite suddenly so one one theory is that uh, she she capsized uh, as a result of a, of, of a freak wave or a great wave mm-hmm. um in that particular area as you you just said it's uh, it's very very dangerous um, there was a study done by uh, professor Mallory of uh, you know the University of South Africa uh, in the 1970s and that estimate and that uh, gave the maximum height for some of these storms in that area as you know waves measuring up to 20 meters high right. so with the vessel that was already um, potentially listing or where you know, there were certainly testimonies of people that were list- you know, you know who, who said that she would hang at the end of a roll it's quite possible that you know, she may have just been overcome by that and capsized very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, the other theory as well was an explosion, um, that her coal bunkers had fired, but again, given the, the, the lack of debris, the lack of um, human remains, yeah. um, it was, again, this was also something that was dismissed. Um, not least because though there had also there, though there had been an earlier coal bunker fire, um, it had been dealt with, it had been repaired. So it was very, very unlikely that it would have happened again. Um, there's also the theory that it could have been potentially a whirlpool in the area, again, which would have forced her to capsize very quickly. Yeah. Um, it could also have been really a number of different factors, um, to be fair. I think a lot of the testimonies show that there was a slight list or yeah. certainly that there was some kind of instability there. She had
2: a strange rolling uh, um, character. Didn't she? Mm, mm. From what I, could, what, what I could read.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, uh, the physicist uh, William Henry Bragg, actually, uh, who was a passenger on board, uh, he later would uh, would write that he believed that she had a very low centre of gravity, uh, which contributed to a lack of uh, a lack of stability at sea. Mm. Um, and one of the very central pieces of uh, piece of evidence that was given was by uh, another passenger, Claude uh, Sawyer, who at the time uh, he was um, travelling on a fare from. Uh, Australia to 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 Cape Town with the option of continuing on to London, he left at Durban um, because he was convinced that the uh, that the ship was unstable. Really? Uh, and even to the point where he you know tells this interesting anecdote of having regular baths on board Waratah and the the water being at a forty five degree level. <laughs> uh,
2: <that's> so good,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it's a very very interesting case, and whilst there is a mix of people um, who say that there is no list. There, there does seem to be, uh, you know, a, 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 a rough consensus that there was something a little bit amiss, and certainly the the evidence from Captain Ilbury after her very first voyage would suggest yeah. that he was concerned that there was a stability uh, issue, uh, um, yeah, and obviously wanted to clarify how she was loaded, how she was stowed at all of the ports yeah. to try and, to, you know, to try and uh, help this.
2: The freak waves thing is interesting because that has its own history where you have. Um, for many years just sort of rumours of there being enormous waves or freak waves experienced at the sea and it's only in recent years with oceanographers kind of studying it that they've worked out that actually it is completely true and valid and you can get 30, 40 metre waves that come out of nowhere.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it seems it seems strange that it wasn't something that was uh, uh, you know that wasn't instantly believed. I think the, the, the overall idea was that it was perhaps that there was a, a really really intense uh, instability, sort of stability issue with Waratah, and that perhaps in the, in in some of the the minor storms that had occurred after the twenty eighth, that she could have possibly succumbed at that point, but actually yeah, in that area it seems quite plausible that, that this freak wave could have, could have potentially been, you know, could have potentially been the cause of that, of Waratah's loss. Yeah, yeah.
2: And in terms of your, the, the records you've got here relating to that inquiry, what, what sort of other documentary evidence have you got?
1: So obviously, we, we Lloyd's Register was issued with six copies of the the official inquiry report um, itself, which which obviously lines out all of these different theories and and the and the, tra- and the train of events. I bet
2: there were some very panicky surveys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> just to double check it, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one of the other documents that we also have on display is uh, from the the border trade itself, um, which was responding to this great media frenzy which was speculating that uh, that Waratah was experimental and had been listed as experimental by Lloyd's register um, that she was uh, notoriously crank uh, you know i.e that she was really really tipping and that her her depth relative to her breadth was way off Uh, and also that um, you know that Waratah hadn't, hadn't been surveyed according to to recent rules. So there were all of this, all of these kinds of strange theories that were being that were being bandied around in the media. And so, yeah. the Board of Trade uh, wrote to Lloyd's Register um, and asking for clarity on all of these issues and sort of in these numbered list. Uh, so we also have the reply to that as well, saying that um, you know Waratah was by no means uh, experimental. Um, she'd been surveyed under. Yeah. Uh, the 1907 to 1908 rules so the the most up-to-date and most recent rules um and that um there was never any question that was ever brought to lloyd's register by the owners by the managers by the builders as to stability or behavior at sea so it's it's yeah it's something that i think was 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 certainly a worry uh you know where you know in within lloyd's register but um, you know, and as a result of that, it was the, the the two surveyors at Glasgow who'd completed that initial first entry report, um, John McIlvaine and uh, A. B. Harris, who came forward and were also asked to provide written um, proof that uh, everything had been done by the book, to the regulations, and in accordance with the plans. Yeah,
2: it's interesting. The science of oceanography has kind of come up trumps. We now know about freak waves, so that's a valid explanation. But in, you know, in this, this is quite interesting. As one of the reasons, I think, why the mystery continues is that maritime archaeologists, wreck hunters, have not been able to find her, and that's somewhere where you know the science of it has grown and grown and grown. And but people have looked, and they just cannot
1: find this ship. No, no, it's uh, she's 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 somewhere, but where where she is, is is still is still very much a mystery. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why she remains such such an iconic vessel for that very reason. Um, Even though she's before the Titanic, there really is no explanation or or verified proof of what happened to her. um, Where she is, given the nature of the currents and the area around there, as you said before, she could have gone anywhere really. She could have gone further south, further west, further east. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly the currents in that region uh, are all uh, generally southwards and uh, eastwards, so it could indicate that she went that way, but um, yeah, it, it remains to be seen. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Thank you.
2: Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube channel where you will find that video showing the material we looked at, as well as a whole host of other fabulous videos to get stuck into, my current favourite being the 3D model of a Japanese aircraft carrier that was used in the attack on Pearl Harbour. And of course, the fabulous ship model videos where we filmed the most astonishing diorama of the SS Great Eastern held in the collections of the National Maritime Museum. And we filmed it using some rather fabulous new technology, allowing us to get closer than ever before to the model. Please remember this podcast is produced by both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. The History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where of course you can join up. Thanks for listening.